0: get started here uh this is colin shots i'm seth Partnow. i am joined today one week into the nba season by uh the ringer zach cram zach how are you doing
1: all right thanks for having me here
0: yeah it's uh good good to have you on we as you're saying before we started we've uh kind of had some offline uh, agreement on some some uh basketball theory stuff over the years so it's uh, good to kind of talk through this publicly um that's, I, I think that's where I wanted to start in sort of the, the new season is are there kind of any, it's, it's early to say, but are there any like broad trends across the league that you've got your eye on already?
1: I have been monitoring a few things. I think earlier today I was poking around and noticed how many offensive rebounds we've seen this season. There are right now nine teams with at least a 30% offensive rebounding rate which is a lot. I think last year there were two. The year before, there were zero. And I first noticed this just watching the Pelicans because watching the Pelicans, how can you not notice how many offensive rebounds they're getting? And I noticed it's not just them, even though they're leaving the league. I have no idea if this will continue past the first week of the season, but it's fairly interesting when I think over the last half decade or so, we've seen teams progressively become less interested in offensive rebounds. And I wonder if this is a... Return to crashing the boards, or if it's just a one-week fl- uh, fluke. I
0: have I have a few thoughts here. One, this is I think this is something that Daryl Morey has been sort of pretty open about thinking that that the, that the league is, just ironic considering who his coach is now. Since Doc is one of the uh, is one of the the uh, the fathers of the of the shoot the offensive boards and get back uh, sort of rage that has been the last decade or so. But uh, Daryl has been on this, and I think a lot of people have, have noted that there's probably a lot of situations where you can, you can go for an offensive board without really impacting your transition defense. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if some teams have, have figured some things out about you know when they can profitably do that.
1: But a lot of the teams at the bottom of that leaderboard this season are the teams we would expect – to be contenders, the 76ers, to bring up Daryl, rank 29th in offensive rebound rate. The Bucks rank 28th, the Clippers 27th, the Warriors, Heat, Celtics, all below 20th as well. So it's kind of interesting when you have teams like Utah and Indiana and New York crashing the boards and the teams that are probably more likely to be competing for the top seeds in the standings, they're still the ones issuing offensive rebounds.
0: So this, this gets into, like, my, my second thought on this is I'm wondering how much of this is uh, sort of something I've been paying attention to, and this is harder to quantify. It seems like point-of-attack defense has been a real struggle for a lot of teams to start the year. And those things, I think, go hand-in-hand. Hand. I mean, I think you see that, uh, you know, one of the reasons why the sort of the buck style uh, you know, drop to protect the paint part of the reason why that's good is not just it takes away layups but it takes away free throws and offensive rebounds to some degree as well so it doesn't make it doesn't it's, it shouldn't be surprising i think that teams that are able to break you know cause breakdowns on the perimeter are having some joy on the on the, the, the offensive boards is that something you've is this something i'm just imagining or have i just been watching too much uh, um, 76ers and timberwolves
1: That was the joke I was going to make. You must have been watching the Timberwolves (laughs) game last night. Uh, I mean, I've noticed it. I also think that this is definitely the kind of topic I get nervous writing about, for instance, because it's so hard to quantify, and I'm so worried that I'm falling prey to confirmation bias. I also think that we've seen perhaps uh, more competitive games than I would have expected early in the season, and I don't know if the point of attack defense specifically plays into that, but just thinking about last night's Timberwolves game, that's a game you would expect San Antonio to lose. San Antonio also beating Philadelphia, which has displayed weak point of attack defense this season, so I wonder if that's maybe a reason that we're seeing the teams that we expected to be tanking uh, be more competitive so far earlier in the season because they're just getting easier shots than you would expect a team of that caliber to generate.
0: I'm wondering as well, if, if there's, there's an offensive side to this as, as well. Normally we expect to see defenses usually have the upper hand early in the season. And I don't totally feel that way. There's been a few games. I think um, the Celtics Sixers game for uh, in opening week, for example, was a high profile game. That was pretty much a rock fight.
1: Uh, you mean Sorry,
0: buck, buck Sixers? Buck Sixers, thank you. It was pretty much a rock fight. Um, however,
1: uh,
0: this year it 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 seems like, or maybe I'm just I'm I'm projecting this that teams have gotten the last couple off seasons. It's been the off season has been short, so teams have maybe eased into the season a little bit, and maybe there are some teams, especially older teams that are still kind of easing in when they maybe could have gone a little harder in training camp given that they had a whole extra month this this, this offseason and they're maybe just not fully up to speed. Again, this is one of those things that's in, that it's impossible to quantify and it's, it's, a, it's a handy narrative. But I, I there, there's enough teams that are playing with enough pace offensively that it just seems like defenders are almost starting behind and never catching up.
1: So I have two thoughts about this. The first is that maybe the reason isn't so easy to quantify, but the results are. And right now, according to basketball reference, the offensive efficiency league-wide is tied for the highest rate ever. And as you say, that only increases as the season goes. Right now, if you just look in pure points per game, we're averaging more points per game than in any season since 1970. And again, that rate, even if pace slows a bit as the season continues, that rate typically rises over the course of a season. So we are in basically unprecedented territory for most fans' lives in terms of the high-scoring nature of the NBA in 2022-23 right now. And the second factor I wonder about is, um, I'm actually working on a piece about this, hopefully in the next week or two, about the new take-foul rule. And I know take-fouls were uh, a blight on the game. I'm glad they're gone. They also weren't a huge part, like, maybe one to two a game on average, but I have noticed just the pace and the the energy that teams are playing with the effort they're putting to get into transition. I wonder if the lack of take fouls or the change in that rule is giving teams more freedom to explore pushing in transition. Fast break points are up a little bit. Transition opportunities are up a little bit, according to the stat sites, again, not by a huge margin, but I wonder if it has that sort of ripple effect into just Broadly putting defenses on their back heels.
0: Sure, and that I, I mean, I think again, the the, the longer off season, the, the more rest, uh, um, seems like it, it it would be consistent with that. You don't want to imply causation yeah. necessarily, but it's um, it's I mean it, it it it's been a constant. The last three years have been a constant. How is this like and unlike basketball? That's come, the the NBA basketball that's come before this. So we're, you're always kind of, you're, you're guessing a little.
1: And I, I think also this is where, uh, again, like both of us as statistically inclined minds want to see these trends extrapolate over more than just a single week. Also see how they linger as, like right now, specific teams as opposed to looking league-wide, I can't help but just wonder about the teams they've played against and whether that's coloring my perceptions of, say, their point of attack defense. Because the 76ers' point of attack defense didn't look very good against the Spurs, but their first two games were against the Celtics and Bucks, So maybe that could explain why they struggled at the start of the season. So maybe I'm being too cautious as... I wait for more data to come in, but I am curious to see would we be having a different conversation even a week from now when we've had twice the amount of data we've had to this point
0: at the same time though I mean we've seen like seeming like we the, you know the, the the jazz finally dropped a game, but we've seen them seem like get penetration at at will, yeah by um Supposedly, uh, being a team that's going in a in a different direction, and they and they may still end up that way, and they may have, you know, a move or two in front of them uh, to do that. But it, it does seem like, all right, if if the other team's like guards are are Mike Conley and Jordan Clarkson, you kind of should be able to stay in front of the ball at this point.
1: They have a, a, a very interesting profile, because it seems like they haven't changed much about how they play offensively, even though they lost Conley and Gobert. Like, they're still attempting a whole bunch of three-pointers, which they were doing under Quinn Snyder. Now they have a new coach and almost an entirely new starting lineup, and yet they're still playing that way, and that's allowing them to generate more points than the other team. Um, And that's really fascinating to me, because just to talk about Utah specifically for a moment like
0: Please, I let's. think they ha-
1: yeah they have <laughs> talent they expect to keep all of that talent over the course of the season because i anticipate at some point they will begin to try losing games but in the meantime they don't have anybody i would consider even a remote all-star contender but they have like seven pretty good players on their team and I think that allows them to maybe take some teams by surprise or at least stay competitive in these games. And the fact that they're generating such a, a good shot profile in terms of threes and layups is, I think, a testament to the the fact that they have pretty good players at every single position and not really any weaknesses on the floor at a given time.
0: And they have a... like. All right, I I you know took a little bit of a swipe at Conley, you know, and, and Clarkson, and and Conley, it's it's that's age related. It's not. I I think Mike Conley has been a great player named me for a long time, but even if they don't have a single shot great shot creator, they have four or five guys who can do stuff with the
1: ball on the floor at all times,
0: and that's yeah, another that's, that's another trend I'm really have been
1: paying attention to. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. It's like the don't play any bad players corollary in this case it would be that don't play anybody who can't dribble corollary um i was watching uh i live in chicago and i was at the the bulls cavaliers game over the weekend where the cavaliers blew them out and that was something i also noticed about cleveland even without darius garland like down the stretch last season they didn't have anybody else who could dribble or create at all and you really notice that so when you just add a second or third or fourth creator who can do anything when you know they catch uh, a pass and have a defense rotating and can attack that closeout. That's something you really notice and multiplies when you have more than one or two players who can do that on the floor. At I think at the time,
0: it's like a, a player like for the Jazz, a player like Kelly Olenek is is uh, you know he's not going to blow by you, but if but he's he's crafty and skilled and smart, and so if he can get a little bit of a head start against the defenders closing out. I mean, he has the ability to kind of torture people, and 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 it's it's and you know the the that has been on full display, I think, in in uh, in in several of Utah's wins.
1: Well, he and Laurie Markkinen, who yeah. uh, MVP candidate Laurie Markkinen through the first week, but I think like that's the exact kind of class of player I think we're both talking about. Someone who is not going to contend for an All Star team but is like the fourth best player on a team and have enough of those guys, bunch them together. I think the key for Utah is that they also have those guys on their bench because they have more than five of them. And that gives you an advantage over the course of 48 minutes.
0: I, I mean, even, even it seems like it's not totally, hasn't totally gone that way, but even Atlanta, I think that they have, you know, I've, I've been looking at this sort of start the season the, the difference between Atlanta and Philly and th- Dallas is okay. We've got the three three of the most ball dominant players in the league. Like, Trey still has the ball a lot, but they are. But um, uh, Dejounte Murray has done more playmaking and has had the ball more than any player, other player on the Hawks. Like, it's again only through a week, but no other teammate that Trey's had aside from one year where Lou Williams just got to dribble the ball the whole time he was playing with the Second Union unit. unit has had the ball as much as DeJounte Murray has had so far this year. And so even even though it's still a Trey offense, they seem to have agreed um, to switch it up. And and uh, I, I forget who I saw noticing this today, um, uh, was that they're running like more pick-and-rolls with John Collins and fewer with Clint Capella. And I feel like that plays into a similar thing in that you know Collins can catch and make a play in a variety. He can pop, he can roll, he can short-roll, he can you know, um, you can restrain, Um that, that that strikes me as, again, a similar kind of ethic that that is being approached as opposed to kind of a pure heliocentric model that the Hawks, for one team, have gone very far down that
1: road in the past. Trey has already taken eight catch-and-shoot threes in three games this year when he normally averages about one a game yeah. over the last few seasons. Yes. I, the Hawks are... Maybe the prime example of a team I would like to see play more games against real competition, given that their three games so far have been home games against Houston, Orlando, and Charlotte. Um, I guess their next two are both against Detroit. Um, so I don't think anyone started the season with more of a cupcake schedule than Atlanta did. But yeah, Murray's been awesome. And I think if there's another trend to the early season, it's been a lot of the offseason acquisitions have been meaningful. Murray and, and Donovan Mitchell and Christian Wood. Have all made impact right away uh, for some of the most impressive teams of the season to start? Like I think Cleveland and Dallas have looked great. Of course, it's only been a couple games, but those off-season acquisitions—maybe they paid too much, maybe they're not the right fit. So far, they've looked quite good.
0: Speaking of pay, of, of perhaps gave up too much and not and not the perfect fit. Uh, I don't think there's a better example of, of, of what you're talking about than Jalen Brunson. Um, mm-hmm. He's he's been good, but I think that um, I'm I am very interested to kind of start taking the temperature of, of kind of Nick's fandom and on, on if uh, on the degree to which Julius Randall, who seemed like they could not wait to be rid of him, uh, you know, halfway through last season, how much like he's been rehabilitated in their eyes, and I it, you know I, you don't want to you know it, it, he was going to be better this year than he was last year, no matter what so you don't want to ascribe it all to to Brunson, but he's got a much healthier shot diet, and it seems like um, that has has in part led to uh, much more effectiveness this year than we saw really at any point last year.
1: Brunson's a stabilizer. He fits that role almost perfectly on a team where he doesn't need to be the leading scorer. I think right now... He's, I guess, second in points, but R.J. Barrett is close behind him, and that's with R.J.'s, like, terrible game to start the season. So I would not remotely be surprised if Brunson finishes the season third on the Knicks in scoring, but his facilitation is what allows Barrett and Randall to get those buckets. Uh, Just mentioning all three of those players in the same sentence, uh, I have to bring up my dream that the Knicks will trade for another lefty and be able to get the Randall, Brunson, Barrett, Hartenstein lefty lineup we got a five-lefty lineup on the floor at once. I really want that this season. But uh, regardless, I think Brunson is another example of a player who maybe isn't jumping off the page with his statistics, but that creation, that facilitation allows him to to be a force multiplier for the other players on the team.
0: Yeah, it hasn't shown up as much kind of in the stats for Barrett yet. Uh, I think that's as much just because he hasn't made a jumper all year. But even, right. but not to quite the same extent as Randall, but he's also had a, a, as I said, a healthier shot diet this year, like you know, more, more team created open attempts. He just for a guy who's been a a pretty good catch and shoot player for his his career so far, he just hasn't really made
1: anything yet. And not remotely surprising that a an offense led by Jalen Brunson would have one of the league's lowest turnover rates, it helps at the margins there, too, because he's able to take care of the ball as opposed to someone like Barrett or or Randall, who I think have less than ideal assist-to-turnover ratios they can create, but it also comes with uh, some mistakes, whereas Brunson is pretty sturdy without coughing the ball up at the same time.
0: That's right. I'm, I'm already countenancing the fact that I've vastly underestimated Jalen Brunson and we'll have to write a mea culpa about that at some point, but we'll see. (laughs) Um, I, is there a better example of this sort of like kind of multiple co-equal partners in an offense than, than New Orleans so far?
1: Is there a better, well, New Orleans is a great example. I'm trying to think if there's a better one. Um, I, mean, I think Boston is up there, too, but like especially with the addition of Malcolm Brogdon, I think, speaking of offseason additions, he just adds a great element to that offense. Uh, but yeah, New Orleans, I think New Orleans is, is almost different because they're doing this without one like A-level point guard, but they have three guys who can approximate that at very different sizes and with very different playing styles, which... I think is such an unorthodox approach and is probably going to catch teams by surprise all season just because it's so different from what basically any other team in the league is doing.
0: CJ is so good. <laughs> like, it's... it's it, they went so your turn, my turn in Portland that that maybe we kind of... We, we underestimated him. But he's, he's he's in a system where there's a little more movement. Like, all of his sort of craftiness in terms of finding himself advantages is really coming to the fore.
1: That was a team um, that I was very curious about trading for Mike Conley. When I was looking at potential destinations for the jazz guys, I just assumed they would sell because I thought, okay, Conley would fit there if they need like an actual point guard to distribute, but CJ has been great. And there's always point Zion to fall back on. Obviously, they're dealing with some injuries right now. But I think the Zion-Ingram partnership was always kind of tenuous when they were both healthy. It didn't seem like Ingram was as involved or in the right ways as he should have been. But with McCollum running the show more as opposed to just point Zion all the time, I think there's a healthier balance between those three creative hubs. Even like is a is a creative hub within that lineup as well. But I think there's a healthier balance that allows guys to get to the spots they need to more often in New Orleans, is just bludgeoning teams with the strategy they're trying to implement. They're taking basically no three pointers, but they're getting all these offensive rebounds and scoring in the paint. And I think that has been one of the most fun teams to watch this year in large part, just because Zion's back and doing Zion things around the rim again.
0: Also, I mean, the- you got to give credit to Herb Jones because I think he's – I'm not sure how well the, the numbers reflected so far, but it seems like he's added a little bit offensively. I wish he was a more willing shooter still, but, like, give it time. But it seems like in terms of, again, guys who can catch the ball and make a play off the dribble, um, you know, he's – He's. I don't know if he's ever going to be – certainly never going to be a guy you throw the ball and say, here, create against a set defense. But, again – Attacking a closeout or catching the ball on the move, and you know making a play—that that's another th- that's an- another guy who just
1: adds to that. Do you think that New Orleans does need to add more shooting? I know we've both, and we were even talking about this off-air beforehand. We've both talked about how the NBA is no longer a league of just take shots from the most efficient area of the floor, and you will win because teams have become smarter and now the only players taking lots of mid-range jumpers are the players who can make lots of mid-range jumpers, maybe Russell Westbrook accepted, Uh, but New Orleans is taking so few three-pointers. It looks like only 26% of their shots this year have been threes, and the next closest is all the way up at 32%, and besides, like, McCollum and Ingram and Trey Murphy, they don't really have players who are both willing shooters and capable shooters, so, do you think that's an area that they need to address, or does their unorthodox approach inure them against that kind of weakness? Um,
0: I think there's a larger question in who their who their fifth closer is. Mm-hmm. Like, we're, we're going to assume it's going to be Ingram's Zion, CJ, and Herb Jones. Like, assuming health, those four guys are going to close. I don't think like I. I think the degree to which you can't close with the traditional five is overstated. I don't think Valanchunas is good enough on either end to buck that trend. in um, again, in most matchups, so he probably is the is is a closer a lot of times by default. Um, I don't think Larry Nance is, is a, as fun as he can be. I don't think he's quite good enough, and he certainly doesn't provide the spacing you're talking about. So I think it's. You know who is that? Who is that fifth guy? I mean, how would you feel if somehow, just to name a name, Jay Crowder was plopped in as the fifth guy in that closing lineup?
1: I feel like you're right about the Valanchunas question, but if Valanchunas isn't on the floor with Jones, McCollum, Ingram, and Zion, I think. Jones is going to need to turn into a cross between like Hakeem (laughs) Elijawan and Gary Payton on defense all by himself. Because I'm not sure how that lineup defends. Obviously, there are the questions about Zion as the lone big on the floor, and that's where I'd be concerned. Yeah. Um so if that's the concern, then I don't know who gets removed. So you're back to square one.
0: Right. And that's unfortunately kind of the the um, I, I don't think over his career, Nance's center lineups have have there's have have not tended to fare well in that front either. Um, they do they kind of uh, whenever I've looked at this, they've kind of get tended to get crushed on the boards, which kind of if you want to like that's exactly the opposite of what you're trying to do if you're you're wanting, wanting to play as a big next to Zion. Um,
1: I have long been interested in the idea of Miles Turner. Next to Zion, but I also don't know how much of an improvement he is over Valanciunas for that specific role.
0: I mean, I, th- I mean, I think defensively, just the rim protection. Um, I, I mean, he's more mobile than Valanciunas. I, d- I don't know if I would necessarily say he's—he's he's certainly not a, su- a super switchable guy, but there's there's gradations of this, and he's more mobile. But, yeah. I mean, the, the the fact that, like, I you know, I think that CJ has probably been a little bit of an underrated defender. I don't think he's like, I don't think he's a plus defender. I think he probably got overly maligned by him having to sort of default as a, the best defender in their backcourt, in, in Portland at times. Um, but still, um, neither Ingram nor Zion has been especially good defensively in New Orleans. So I think that's that how that closing lineup fits is still their biggest question and and that's sort of that ties in kind of to the the shooting question I think.
1: Yeah, and this conversation I think broadly speaking is one of the reasons this season is so interesting to me because we don't have at least in my opinion a juggernaut that has spots 1 through 5 and a quality bench all nailed down. I wrote a piece a couple weeks ago about how vegas has this as the most wide open season on record in terms of like not having one single favorite and i think while the questions might be a little bit more glaring for new orleans than we're talking about them now you could ask almost the same questions for any other team whether they're health related or depth related or that fifth spot related and i think that's what's been fun about the first few weeks is we're starting to get answers to those questions um
0: I was just thinking, and, I was just thinking about that. Um, what are like? It, well, I was gonna say, but the Clippers, and I was like, well, no, I, I would probably feel more like that about the Clippers if they still had Harden Is that weird? That <laughs> like I love
1: Isaiah the- Hartenstein. That's not weird. I think he's a meaningful loss, and I understand that they're probably gonna go like five out in any playoff matchup. But I think having a bit more flexibility helps. I also think their offense has been particularly unimpressive early on. And I expect that to to change as the season continues, but I think they're ranked like 29th in offensive efficiency right now. So that's not ideal.
0: Yeah. They've, I mean, they've, they've thrown the ball around a little bit. They've kind of at times done the way, the thing, the Warriors do, even though they don't play the sort of the ink, the, the, uh, the, Circuit style that Golden State can. They, they have a tendency to, to, to be loose with the basketball, I think. Um, and that's yeah. kind of can keep teams in games against them.
1: Yeah, I think like Boston, if I knew Robert Williams were going to be healthy, I'd say they're a complete team. But I don't know Robert right. Williams is going to be healthy. Right. I and mean, that's a huge factor. I think Milwaukee, if I knew everyone was going to stay healthy there, I would say they're a complete team. But I think they're pretty thin especially with I have Middleton questions. and Connaughton out right now.
0: I have questions about, like, it's this is going to, like, Eric Name and I talked about this last week, but it's weird to say this to the team that starts with Giannis, but I have questions about their athleticism in a in postseason matchup.
1: I but. heard that conversation, and Eric was pushing back against the idea that the Bucks are too old, and I think largely that's true, but it's an interesting question given that, Basically, the entire rest of the supporting cast is in their 30s. And that makes you wonder how many more runs they have left, especially with Holiday and Middleton and Lopez. Like, after this year, after next year, will they have to start rotating out members of the supporting cast? And I think that adds urgency to this season to use those second-round picks and whatever like back of the rotation flots and they have to pile together to match salaries, whatever, like one upgrade they make at the deadline, I think that needs to be a really meaningful upgrade as opposed to Serge Ibaka last season.
0: I mean, I said at the time and, and they, that, that, uh, that trade was as, as much about adding those second round picks to, to try, to try again this year. I mean, we saw it last year at the trade deadline. We saw that the, that there were not, Useful players available for any reasonable trade ask at at, at the deadline. Just because so many, like you know, sure, hold out for a first round pick for Terrence Ross. That makes sense. Like, what? Are, like, what are we doing here, guys? Um, before let, let's you know what I think. Orlando is the next team to go to, just because I think in a roundabout way that gets us to the last topic I wanted to talk about, which is you know pick swaps and and Victor Wembanyama. <laughs> So, how much of the Magic have you seen this year?
1: I watched almost their entire opening game against the Pistons. And I have so much fun. That was like, was that the the first game of that first night where everyone was playing? I think so. And that was a really fun lead in because, you know, the teams were making mistakes. They're young, but it was fun. And then you could kind of switch from that game onto the games with veterans who will contend for the title this year. But that was a great game. I, I've watched snippets of their other games where it seems like they keep coming close and just don't have the ability to to go over the top. Like they've played four games that have been fairly close until the end, I think. Um and like Palo and Franz are just gonna be awesome for a long time, is my one impression of this team.
0: I mean I think if you wanted to to name the perfect Orlando magic season this year. It would be whatever number of the the most number of wins that gets you to a bottom four record because you don't want to lose everyone <laughs> So the most like the you know the, the, the price is right on on wins for, for that uh, and and Paulo and, and, and Franz look awesome every night. Like wh- you know and, and everyone and everyone else that you care about stays healthy. Like I think if you have that you that's 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 Yahtzee. from a magic standpoint, isn't it? Yeah,
1: and if I could add, like, the cherry on top, I would say have one of the other kind of fringe guys take a meaningful step forward. And I don't know if this will continue, but Bull Bull, man, he's looked good. He's averaging 10 points a game in 16 minutes. When he goes up for a rebound and unfurls his arms, it looks like almost nothing else in the NBA. Maybe it looks like Victor Wamanyama, which we can talk about
0: in a moment. Well, but. it's funny. It's funny you mention that because he had a he had a play last night where he got a rebound and came down the floor and like did a slow euro step and like flipped a little backhand shot off the glass, and it made me think of if he was getting drafted two years from now instead of when he actually did come out, he would get drafted twenty spots. I don't want to say too high, but twenty spots higher, because he would get the same sort of bump that, like, of of being that kind of skilled, ridiculous body type that Bruno Caboclo got coming into the draft the year after Giannis.
1: I can't hear that name without thinking of the two years away from two years away" <laughs> quote. Sorry, that brain freeze for a second. Yeah, I think the magic more invested in their front court. I even think Carter is a solid player and fits next to Franz and Paolo. The backcourt, I'm not sold on any of them. I think Suggs was, I guess, quietly because nobody really paid that much attention to the magic last year. Suggs Mm. was quietly one of the worst lottery players uh, in his rookie season and has looked a little better this year. I'm curious to see if that continues I'm not sold on Markel Fultz once he comes back. I'm not sold on Anthony. Um, so I think there are a lot more questions about their backcourt. But who knows? They might have two lottery picks in the next draft to deal with it because of the Vooch trade that keeps on giving.
0: Yeah. So I think that's a that's a semi-natural segue into to one of the articles that you recently wrote that I thought was super interesting, which was an attempt to quantify, uh, the, the value of pick swaps. Uh, it's become, that's become a thing in all these superstar trades, um, that you were pretty down on, on kind of the, 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 the value of a pick
1: swap. I was, I looked at all the first round pick swaps in NBA history that could have been exercised up to this point and found that if you do all the math and, look at how often they actually transfer and the value they yield when they do transfer, they're only about as valuable as like a high second-round pick on average. Like The number 36 pick, I think, was where I had it. And that is a conglomeration of a lot of different results. On the high end, you have Boston jumping from number 27 to number 1, uh, which they then swapped to take Tatum. And on the low end, you have 60% of pick swaps that don't transfer at all. So they don't generate any value. And I think I am low on them in the aggregate. On the other hand, some of them will work out. New Orleans, certainly looking like they're going to swap their pick for the Lakers this year. Whereas the other pick swaps this year are like the Clippers with the Thunder. And I would highly doubt the Thunder will end up swapping that pick. And there's uh, a Bucks pick that I highly doubt. Or, sorry, the Bucks' pick is next year. I think the other one this year is the Nets in Houston, which unless they trade Durant, the, the Rockets will not have a better pick than the Nets to end up swapping. So I think this year is almost a, a prime example of both the promise and peril of a pick swap because there are three of them, and two of them probably won't generate any value at all. And then the third one could get the Pelicans' Victor Wembanyama.
0: Then That's what I want. That was the, the sort of to, to very specifically frame the question. What's a 1% chance of, or, or adding 1% to your chance of getting Victor Weminyama? What's that worth? I, I
1: wonder if we'll see that with tanking this year. Like how aggressively teams pursue tanking because of the odds at the number one pick. I, I can't even imagine what tanking would look like this season under the old lottery odds where there was a 25% chance of getting the number one pick if you had, you know, the worst record and that plummeted pretty dramatically from 1 to 2 to 3 to 4 but right now the top 3 teams in the lottery all have a 14% chance and the fourth team has a 12.5% chance that's almost the question you're looking at like how aggressively will a team try to tank from spot 4 to spot 3 or from spot six to spot five, which comes with an extra 1% boost at getting the number one pick.
0: But that's, I, I think the, the way I'm coming at that question is I think that, you know, underpinning that is, um, I, you know, I, I think at this point, everyone is, is largely in agreement that Wimbanyama is the, the best prospect to come in in the last, is, is it too much to say the last decade? I, I mean
1: given that I've seen a lot of uh, scouts saying he's the best prospect since LeBron I think that's almost being generous.
0: I mean I there's I I was it Richard Jefferson who said that if you know if if 18 year old LeBron and Wembenyama are in the same draft you take Wim And Yama? I don't think that's I don't think, I don't think that's a crazy take. That's you know you make short list of best like players as prospects in my lifetime and we're talking like Tim Duncan, who was the number one pick whenever he came out from the first, from a month into campus on Wake Forest. I, I like remember cause I saw him play early in his, in, in person early in his freshman year. And, and it's like, Oh, he, he might be pretty good. But then you were starting to read like, he would be the number one pick if he came out now. And, and you know, again, it was three and a half years later that he came out and was the number one pick, but like Duncan Shaq, LeBron, maybe AD, and you know, and depending on how your level of Euro Luca, like that's the that's the current, and he is in the very top. Like I, I think he's a clearly a better prospect than AD and, and Luca. Like this doesn't mean he's going to be a better player. It just means as a as a as a prospect. So regardless, this doesn't. We don't need to, to litigate that exactly, but a generational prospect and so that 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 tiny bit of equity to adding that that's 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 just that's that that's that's franchise changing
1: and i think that's where an analysis like i did of averaging the history together can fall a little bit short because one when i'm averaging like pick values i'm taking the value of a generic number one pick, which to be clear is usually very good, but it's not when Benyama level number one pick, but also it's hard. And when I talked to a couple executives to be like, Hey, is this analysis, does this hold water to you? They said generally, yes, but there's a reason teams still want to trade for pick swaps because they still have that lottery ticket in mind because they see Boston jumping from number twenty-seven to number one and think, "Okay, that's a possibility." If I include this as part of my trade package, it was a proof of su- concept,
0: right? But to that end, are you surprised at how feisty the bad, te- the the supposedly bad teams in the league have been so far?
1: Yes or- and no. I think, on the one hand, it's most tanking takes place in the second half of the season when the Thunder decide that SGA is going to miss the rest of the year with, you know, a toe injury or whatever. And I think that's where it's most heavily concentrated. I also think to some extent executives know the new lottery odds and there's almost no difference between winning 15 games and 18 or 20 games. Like I think since the league expanded to 30 teams, every single time a team has won 20 games or fewer in an 82-game season, it's landed one of the top three picks, or one of the top three spots in the lottery, I should say. And maybe if everyone's trying to tank 20 and 62, will only finish like fourth or fifth. But for the most part, as long as you stay in the teens, you're fine for one of those 14% chances. So maybe there's not as much reason to sweat winning two of your first four games. Or if there is, then you know Utah's going to start trading everybody,
0: and Devin Vassell is going to Devin Vassell is going to start missing games with
1: tendonitis. Yeah, does it surprise you? Um,
0: I, hmm. San Antonio surprises me more, just partially because I just didn't think they had the talent to right. even if they try. were trying. Um, Utah is is like in retrospect, it's like okay, I'm dumb. They still have a lot of NBA basketball players, as you were pointing out. And, you know, um, it turns out some of my skepticism about uh, Euro, Euro basket, uh, uh, Laurie Markkinen was unfounded at least a weekend. Um, that's actually, I've, I've sort of been, I've been I've been wondering to myself if Cleveland would have been better off to include Jared Allen instead of Laurie Markkinen, given how kind of, Laurie Markins, an imperfect three, but given how little they've gotten from that slot, like would that would... is
1: wow. Well, I assume you're <laughs> saying that they wouldn't that they wouldn't have had to give up the the same pick quantity if they had included Jared Allen in the deal.
0: I mean, I just just if they I mean, if just saying like everything else about, I don't like the salaries probably don't work or, or whatever, but like. It, sub- substantively, everything else about the Mitchell trade is the same, except it's Jared Allen instead of Laurie Markkinen. I just I, I wonder about that. I I really like Jared Allen as a player. I think that that he actually he along with Robert Williams sort of fits the the because uh, he he's, he's he's sneakily skilled with the ball, can run a DHO, can catch the ball in the move and make a pass, and stuff like that. Um, but with uh, just again having kind of the multiple threats and the the, the guy who can shoot and you could find a reasonable interior center a six nine guy who can shoot and handle. I don't know if and and create for himself apparently, like you can't really find those as much. So it's just that's that's an interesting question I I did I never thought I'd be asking.
1: I think I'm almost aesthetically repulsed by that idea because the idea of Allen and Mobley playing together appeals to me so strongly I don't want to break them up I I talked and written about this before That the idea that the current NBA lacks stylistic diversity is a a simplistic reading but and and I largely agree with that but having the stylistic diversity of of the twin towers of Allen and Mobley is just so wonderful how could you want to split that duo
0: yeah, the twin towers are working so well in Minnesota so far. Oof, that's that's a
1: fair rebuttal. <laughs> I
0: mean, that's the like the number, you know. Give I mean, first of all, give it time. Second of all, it's 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 pretty it's pretty rough so far. Um they they, they that they getting, you know, mally by San Antonio at home is uh is worrisome. You know, they, they made the final score closer, but they were down 31 after three at home to San Antonio, who should be the worst team in the league this
1: year. It's funny that every team we just mentioned, Cleveland, Utah, Minnesota, San Antonio, has all uh, been involved in a trade of pick swaps over the last few months. I guess because every team is getting in on that <laughs> action. But...
0: Yeah. It's like, what, what yeah. teams aren't? Charlotte?
1: Yeah. The other interesting aspect about pick swaps I think relates to something else I wrote a couple years ago about how unpredictable future NBA records are I think you look at picks that are traded and think oh you know uh, the Lakers have LeBron and Anthony Davis there's no (laughs) way the pick swap that they give to New Orleans in a few years is going to be valuable or on the flip side I remember when the, the Celtics held the Sacramento Kings pick and it was the Kings are always terrible. That pick's not going to be super valuable. And then it was like number 14 or something. Cause that was the year the Kings almost made the playoffs and more than a year or two out NBA records are almost completely random from I, team to team. So
0: and I, I want think- a little bit okay. of, 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 uh, in, in the, my favorite scene in the book, the big short, and, and they do it reasonably well in the movie is the scene where, where, uh, um, uh, um, I'm gonna. I'm now uh, Steve Carell's character like sits down with the hedge fund with with the banker at, at dinner. And he's just like so like disgusted with the guy that he walks out and it's just like, mm-hmm. I want to short everything that guy touches. And I sort of feel that's what New Orleans did trading with Rob Palenka. <laughs> and so I so like, yes, the record is unpredictable, but man, there's a chance this goes bad. And, um, you know, I think you can see what rosters the Lakers have put on the floor now the last three seasons. Um, it um, it, It feels like a reasonable surmise, doesn't it?
1: Well, and I feel even more than that, it's a matter of diversifying their portfolio because they didn't just get pick swaps from the Lakers. They also got pick swaps from the Bucks in the Drew Holiday deal which probably won't be super valuable, but what if Giannis hadn't signed yep. the extension? Or the what Utah did this summer, they got pick swaps multiple from Cleveland and Minnesota, or maybe they only got one from Minnesota. But the point is they now have multiple teams that can fail and give them a lot of value. The Thunder have obviously been doing that for years, and I think maybe that's the evolution of pick swaps This decade, even beyond what was happening in the 2010s, where when teams would trade pick swaps, it was mostly just one at a time. I think the Joe Johnson trade might have been the first to send multiple pick swaps in the same deal. And teams would basically only have one. So if they were worse than the team they could have gotten the pick swap from in whatever year it was ready to come up, well, then they were just out of luck, generating no value. Whereas if you're Utah or New Orleans or oklahoma city with any of these future deals maybe one of them won't hit but if you have three or four opportunities all of that randomness means one of them probably will
0: oh i guess i'll close this discussion by 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 offering some support to the the poor folks who have to do the the programming of projected draft odds or projected draft orders um based on you know some of these if you go on like real gm and look at like future pick odds. And there's like some of these picks that are, they get the the third best of Brooklyn, Houston, Miami, Charlotte, and Toronto's 2025 second round pick.